Thanks for supporting On Good Medicine with me, Mary Warner. This is a no-frills audio recording of a long read. No music, no sound effects, no distractions. Enjoy this month's long read. An introduction or how I ended up here talking to you about medicine. One of the questions that begins nearly every one of my classes in medical school each semester is, what brought you here? Experiencing loss, following the footsteps of someone admired, and I have actually heard this, it was the cool thing to do, are just a few of the many reasons people study medicine. As an undergraduate or graduate student in Mississippi, I was never asked why art history or why Southern studies? There is something about this medicine, though, that opens everybody up to share stories of how they ended up committing to a demanding schedule of endless studying and work that forces you to get beneath the surface of your skin. So why did I choose this route? Good question. Deciding to go back to school after you've lived a few lives, have kids, or a job is a no-slouch move by anyone in my book. Frankly, it's not for the faint of heart, but especially not for anyone with an ego that needs checking, or maybe that is exactly who it is for. Nevertheless, I was approaching 40 and had burned out doing marketing and brand strategy. It was becoming clear to me that marketing was also a field where the older you get, the less respect and jobs you also get, especially as a woman. I needed an old lady plan. I have always wanted to be a doctor. My uncle was a doctor. He lived in a big house, drove a Corvette, and seemed to know everything. It wasn't my uncle's stuff that made me want to be a doctor, although his stuff was nice. It was my curiosity and disposition for tinkering. As far as I could tell, investigating and fixing things were exactly what doctors did. The problem was that, like my dad, I had a phobia of blood, needles, and bodies, just a few of the important things that comprise the life of a doctor. It probably wasn't too much of a surprise to a few people in my life when at the age of 38, however, I announced I would apply to medical school. But not Western medical school, because that would be kind of normal, but a research program in traditional Chinese medicine in China. From my experiences with traditional medicine, there was no blood, check. The needles were a fraction of the size of those used for drawing blood or inserting intravenous tubes, check. And as for bodies, unlike Western medical school, there would be no cadavers to dissect, also check. The point was I had a vision, even if it was still a bit murky. I also had a history with this medicine it had helped me during my first and second miscarriages, but it was mostly a gut thing. I'd be omitting an important part of the story if I didn't share that my connection to my dad had something to do with it, too. In his youth, my dad lived in a small village in South Korea for some time when he went on the lam from the military. Before he became a devout Christian, he also practiced into Buddhism. Now, I know very little about this sliver of his life. He chooses not to speak of it, but it's always intrigued me. 
In the years following his Christian conversion, my dad's Buddha mind guided his actions in perspective of the world. As a student of Asian culture, it's even easier for me to see it now. He moved and spoke slowly. He let the silence speak. I had always attributed his way of being to an ancestry rooted in the indigenous culture of Mexico, but I was wrong. It was the result of a life cultivated in a different hemisphere, which was an oasis of calm compared to the surging pulse that defined America in the 1970s. Instead of souvenirs, he returned to Florida with a calmness that permeated the home he would build with my mother. Notably, when I interviewed one of my dad's friends for an essay I wrote, calm was exactly the word they used to describe our three-bedroom, one-bath abode that housed six small children. And it was for the most part. Dinners were another reflection of my dad's time in Asia. From an early age, I grew up eating noodle soups, pot stickers, and fried rice. Our large brood would pack into a round booth at his Korean friend's Chinese restaurant for regular suppers. Before we'd leave, Mr. and Mrs. Lee would always invite the kids into the bodega they owned next door to pick candy, ginger chews for me, to stuff our pockets with for the ride home. At the age of 10, I was as proficient with a pair of chopsticks as I was a fork and knife, thanks to my dad. Inside our home, whatever essence of Asia remained with him imbued our lives. I longed for so much more. I followed him around our backyard as he, the master tinkerer, tinkered, hungry for any crumbs he might share of a place I dreamed of shrouded in mist and mystery. Poor kids travel by reading books, so that's what I did. In college, I focused my art history work on printmaking, but I was especially taken with Japanese woodblock artists, which inevitably led to an obsession with Japanese writers, then filmmakers, and finally, designers. While I turned down a job to work in Japan in my 20s, I remained passionate about Asian culture. I studied kanji on my own and made plans to go to the other side of the world one day. I didn't feel ready, however, and something deep inside whispered, wait. One day I would go. One day. One day became next year, then in a few years, and finally a decade passed. Asia became a kind of Shangri-La as it was carried down a river towards another life. In brief, I got engaged, got unengaged, bought a house, worked in Europe and the Middle East, and then my corporate job relocated me to Los Angeles. Finally, I settled in New England. By the time I was 35, I was, not surprisingly, burned out. My first job at 15 was slinging chocolate-dipped ice cream cones and fried chicken strip baskets at the local Dairy Queen until midnight most days of the week. I hadn't stopped working since 1995. So, I took a sabbatical after leaving my corporate work, and I decided I would go to Asia. She had waited long enough. While life slows down to a frame-by-frame -frame speed when you're about to die, between then and birth, it feels like someone's hit the fast-forward button. Six months later, I made plans to permanently move to Vietnam, and by summer's end, I would marry my friend I had met up with in Hanoi. You would think that would be the end of my story, but as it turned out, Asia marked a new beginning. In Vietnam, where I didn't speak the language, the noisy city of Hanoi became quiet. 
Only in your solitude can you discover a sense of your own beauty. John O'Donohue wrote those words in Anamkara, his lush and winding love letter on becoming the people we are meant to be. The noise of Vietnam forced me to seek out my beauty. A few months after my arrival, I was introduced to Vin Nguyen, a 23-year-old woman who was born with cerebral palsy. Sparkling onyx eyes, a wide smile, and a heart with the capacity to love even the most tortured person defined her. Open and warm, Vin embodied the spirit of Anamkara, or soul friend. Beneath the layers of joy, though, I sensed a life born from suffering, and I was right. As a newborn in the hospital, she was overlooked until her grandfather bribed the doctors to give Vin the milk of the other babies dying around her. Today, Vin gets few visitors, especially now because of the pandemic, and cerebral palsy has left her unable to move beyond the confines of a windowless, four-foot by seven-foot room in which she spends every waking and sleeping moment of her life. So much solitude. I have often wondered how different Vin's life would have been had she been born a decade later or had she simply not been born into financial poverty. I stress the word financial because despite her hardships, Vin's life is rich in love and attention. She is beauty. I'm happy, she tells me over FaceTime. So, so happy. Vin's laughing and it's 12.30 a.m. in Hanoi. I can hear her mom who recently contracted COVID-19 coughing in the background. It's been five years since we met and we talk regularly. We met in 2017 when we were paired by an NGO for English and Vietnamese language practice, but our relationship quickly evolved into a sisterhood of laughter, of love, of curiosity. More than becoming sisters though, Vin offered me a chance to know what it would be like to support someone's body, mind, and spirit as a future practitioner of medicine. She helped me tap into another source of life that flowed within me. She taught me how to listen, a key skill of the best practitioners, and how to move and embrace a fragile body. While I grew up in a working class family, I never knew the kind of poverty that nearly snuffed out Vin's life. Poverty and medicine are inextricably linked, a relationship we don't examine or recognize enough. Vin helped me understand how poverty shapes us and how through the simple act of attention, we can support those crushed beneath its weight. Finally, she generously gave me the wisdom of presence. If all else, the best medicine requires presence, considerably passive action that supports our patients. I'd even argue it's our highest calling as practitioners. It wasn't long after knowing Vin that I applied to medical school. When I reflect on what brought me to study medicine, it's hard to hone in on one thing. Was it my miscarriages, my dad, that kind TCM doctor in Rhode Island who treated me after the loss of my first child, the silent Vietnamese traditional medicine doctor I met weekly for Qigong? Or was it the many friends who taught me how to access the deeper parts of myself to help others? 
Was it the people in my life who made it okay for me to be myself, even if that meant doing the weird thing? Could it have been the walk with Thich Nhat Hanh in Memphis when I was 23 years old just beginning to explore Buddhism? Was it Vin? Certainly, it was all of those things and many more, each running beneath the softened landscape of my life like a hidden spring. The most important thing of all, however, was that like my great-great-uncle and his ancestors, all dowsers and whales, I stayed attuned to flow. In the end, following flow led me to begin this writing practice. Part of why I wanted to write on good medicine was to share my experiences exploring various medicines across the world, but mostly I want to connect with people and dig into what makes something, some practice, some ritual, some regimen, good medicine. In doing so, I hope to foster healthy inquiry and debate within this community of seekers and help shape what medicine can become. Another thing I intend to do is dispel some of the fear people feel exploring beyond the bounds of conventional medicine. Personally, I had to shed a lifetime of limiting beliefs before I could take the first step to see a practitioner who wasn't Western trained. Often our misunderstandings about what we think we know and our prejudices actually keep us from practices that can be the most supportive and nourishing. The truth is, when I began my journey in traditional medicine, I was skeptical. By now, I've had a lot of acupuncture to confirm that my body, mind, and spirit have benefited from it. On Good Medicine is as much my story as it will be yours. Thank you for being here with me.